Last night I was in Indianapolis. Two of my sons, two, my two sons live there. And uh, so we went and we met with them. And as I was driving back, I was thinking about how small they used to be. You know, my youngest son graduated from Butler University in May. My oldest son is uh, 35 years old and employed, married, and all the wonderful things that go with that. And I was thinking about how small they used to be. And one of the things we used to do when they were little is, uh, when it was my turn to take care of them, you know, mom would go somewhere like grocery shop or something like that, I would put them on the washing machine or the dryer, and then I would get down below them, and I would hold my hands up, and I would say, jump. Well, they weren't big enough to jump yet, and they would kind of lean forward, and I would catch them. And they loved that. So I'd set them back up on the washer dryer. I'd hold my hands up. They would lean forward, and they would drop, and I would catch them. It's kind of, you know, the old trust thing. I want them to trust me later on in life. And it grew into this thing where we moved into a house that had stairs, and at the top of the stairs, my son would come around when I would come home, and I would be at the bottom of the stairs, and he'd come around, and he'd go, Dad! And I'd say, jump. And I would hold my hands up, and he would leap from the stairs, only four or five stairs, and I would catch him. Or he would be somewhere, and he would be, and I would hold my arms out, and he would jump, and I would catch him. All about trust, you know, just reminding them that I'm their dad, I'm there for them in any way that I could. Sometimes that's what Christ does for us. He puts us into circumstances and into places to remind us to trust him, to remind us that he is capable of catching us. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22, we find this story about Jesus and his disciples. And it is the story about them being on the Sea of Galilee, the storm coming up, and how Jesus took care of them. In verse 22 it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Immediately. The crowds had come from the feeding of the 5,000. There were about 25,000 people that Jesus fed, and that crowd is saying, this is it. Here's our king. This is our guy. Let's start the kingdom. Let's have the insurrection that brings down Rome and enters into this kingdom where the Jews are in charge and Jesus is going to be our guy. But instead of basking in all of that, Jesus said to his disciples, get into the boat, go to the other side. Get away from here. Uh, the disciples, two years they've been with Jesus. They fought the political problems. They fought the religious leaders. And now, here's the chance. Jesus has done this marvelous miracle. Why not now? Why not now? And Jesus says, no, get in the boat. Let's go. Let's go away. Except go without me, is what he said. And the storm hits them. Now Jesus is going to allow them to be in this place and in this storm. And when we are talking this morning, I hope that you understand that there are a variety of different storms that you could be experiencing. One of my classes at school, I asked them, I said, I'm going to be preaching on Sunday, and I'm going to be talking about storms. I said, give me some examples of storms you're going through. So they wrote down on a piece of paper, and they handed it back to me. Expectations was one of the things. The storms of expectation for high schools. Another one wrote the competitiveness of getting into the right college, the whole process of competing. Another student just wrote the word insecurities. 
Another student wrote, my mom and dad are going through a divorce. That's a storm. This morning there are storms that you are in. And so what I would like for you to do is to understand that there is help for you in the storms. And if we look at verse 23, we see the first help that comes when we're in the storms. And that is Jesus will pray for you. Jesus will pray for you. Notice verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. In John chapter 6, where they're telling the story about this same event, it says that they wanted him to be king, and Jesus sent them away. We're not doing that, Jesus says. Jesus then sends his disciples away, and he goes to pray. And if you think about how Jesus prayed, he prayed a couple of ways. First of all, he prayed for himself, I would imagine. Think about Jesus. He's in with this crowd that's looking to almost kidnap him and make him king. And so he's feeling that stress. And he says, no, I need to be in a very familiar place. And he wants to be in the presence of his father. And so he's in the presence of his father in this time of prayer. So he's praying, and it's for himself to be back with his father and to commune with him. Sometimes when you talk about someone praying, people are puzzled and they're saying, well, was Jesus sick? Isn't that why you pray? I'm sick, so I need to pray. Was Jesus in distress? So I need to pray. No, Jesus needed time with his father. It was a relationship that he needed to enjoy with his father. I mean, think of a relationship that you have. You know, I have a relationship with my wife. Imagine if the only time I talked to my wife was, hey, I have a headache. Can you help me with my headache? Or the only time she speaks to me is, I need this jar. I need this lid loosened on this jar. Imagine if the only time we spoke to each other is when we had a need, when we wanted something from the other person. You say, well, that's no kind of relationship. Well, that's what Jesus is illustrating to us here. His relationship was not based upon what he needed from the Father, you know, give me something. It was about the fellowship and the presence of being with his Father, renewing and reminding himself of that relationship. So prayer is much more than just asking for something. It's talking to someone. And that's what Jesus does. He talks to the Father. And remember in the garden when Jesus prayed, he prayed, you know, don't let this cup pass from me. You know, I I understand my mission. There may have been a moment like that for Jesus now. Because the time is right. The crowds are susceptible to my message. They, can we do it, God? Can we just start the kingdom now? And in prayer and in communion and talking with the Father, he's able to remind himself that there can be no kingdom without the cross. There cannot be anything. You came, Jesus, to seek and save the lost. You need to go to the cross. We can't skip that step. And so Jesus prays for himself, and he also prays for others. Uh, Think about the disciples being caught up in the spirit of this, this crowd, this enthusiastic crowd. Perhaps Jesus is praying that his followers would not have a shallow devotion that is dependent upon what they get, but they would have a deeper faith that is dependent upon Christ. Remember the disciples? They finished the miracle of feeding them 5,000 with a basket of food. Remember, there were 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple. So they're, they're living high. And so Jesus is praying for them, pray for depth for them. 
Also, he's praying for his disciples because that's what he did. John 17, remember he prayed for unity? Remember when Peter was talking and Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter? That's what Jesus did. Jesus prayed for his disciples. If Jesus spent time in prayer as much as he did, and he's the Son of God, how much more time in prayer should I be spending? Jesus is praying for you in the storm. Jesus is the one that's advocating for us. I love 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John, in 1 John, is writing to believers And he is saying to them, you don't have to get saved over and over again. He is saying that when you have difficulties and you sin, don't worry, there's an advocate, Jesus Christ, who's reminding and telling the Father, I've taken care of that sin. You see, there is not a reluctance that God the Father has, and he needs Jesus to persuade him. That's not what it is. But it's to remind us and to remind God, I've taken care of this, God. And you need to know that what Jesus has done on the cross has been taken care of. And so Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. And the disciples who are in the storm, Jesus is praying for them. And you who this morning are in the storm, Jesus is praying for you. Please notice the second help in the storm. And that is Jesus allows us to experience the storms. Look at verse 24. It says, but the boat by the time by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Again, in John chapter 6, it says, a long way from the land, about three or four miles is what we're, we're looking at. My wife and I had an opportunity to travel to Israel this past June. We went with a group from our school, and we were in this place, and I remember the guide stopping when we were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and saying, this is where it happened. This is where it would have taken place. And you could see the shore, but not very clearly or very accurately. You were definitely a distance from it. And here these disciples are out, and they were tested. And the idea here, uh, for the winds was against them. The idea is they were like tortured by these winds. They were so great and so fierce. Uh, The storms were real, and Jesus was the one that had said, Go, go. And the disciples had gone. The students that I talked about, about their expectations, the burdens, the storms, the winds that are around them, God doesn't delight in the storm. And God is not putting you in the storm for punishment. God delights in the result. God delights in the result. The storms are an inevitable part of life. It is the part of the brokenness that comes in the world in which we live. And the storms are there. But God is with us as we go through them. And Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead. God doesn't delight in that storm. God doesn't delight in the suffering. God delights in the result. Sitting across from my son last night, 35 years old, when he was first born, he had what was called a beta strep. And when he was born, he was put into the intensive care unit. And in order for me to go in and see him, I had to scrub and gown and mask and all of those kinds of things and then go into the intensive care unit and watch as the doctors administered things to him. And he was so small, 
and just so little. And I remember the doctor came in and, and gave him a shot of some kind of antibiotic or something like that. And my son screamed out, just a little baby. And I thought, I can take this doctor. <laughs> I, can, I could probably remove him from this equation. But I, I didn't do that because that was what was best for my son who was going through that. And that's how God looks at us. He sees that things aren't what you want them to be. He sees the storm, the pain that is there. And he's not delighting in that. But he knows the result that will be there. We experience the storms that God allows for us. Please notice that the disciples continue on. They are about halfway to where they need to be. So to turn around was the same as to go forward. But they continued to go forward because that's what Jesus had said to them. Jesus had said, go on, go forward. And they went forward. They did not stop. They continued in obedience. I hope that you understand that even when you are faithful and obedient to what God wants you to do, there are still storms. It is a bad theology It is an unbiblical theology that teaches you that find Jesus, lose all your troubles. That is false theology. The reality is that God puts us and allows us in those storms because he knows what the results will be. And that's what we're going to see here in just a minute. But these storms, there is an obedience that comes with the storm. John records the information of the disciples rowing and fighting the storm. They were determined to do what God, what Jesus had asked them to do. There will be storms as you walk with the Lord. There was a lady, her name was Corey Tenboom. She was a watchmaker by trade. She grew up in a devoutly Christian family, and during World War II, she and her family hid hundreds of Jews in their home. Until one day, a Dutch citizen, fellow Dutch citizen, turned them in to the Nazis. And she spent time in a concentration camp. And when she came out, she recorded her story in a book called The Hiding Place. It's a very good book. You should read it. But here is one of the quotes. She says this, When the train goes through a tunnel and the world gets dark, do you jump off? Of course not. You sit still and trust the engineer to get you through. There will be storms, and Jesus allows us to go through the storms, and he will direct us through those storms. So we want to understand that the help during the storms of life is that Jesus will pray for you. Jesus allows the storms. And the third help is that Jesus will meet you in the storm. Jesus will meet you in the storm. Now, there's one boat, and Jesus has sent the disciples out into the boat. And we need to remember that the storm scene has played out before with the disciples. Do you remember they were in the boat and the storm came up and it was rocking their boat? But do you remember what they were able to do? They went to the back of the boat and they said, Lord, help us. You know, don't you care? And Jesus stood up and stilled the waters. But this time, there is no Jesus. And notice what happens in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And it would have been dark, especially because of the storm. It would have been even more dark. No stars, no moon. 
nothing, and Jesus begins to walk. He walks in the storm. He knows where you are in your storm. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. When you're in the storm, Jesus will meet you there because he knows where you are. I love the way that this text unfolds. It just says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Like, no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. (laughs) But not for Jesus. And he just simply is walking. Jesus knows your distress. Jesus knows your location. Jesus knows how to get to you. The disciples aren't calling out to Jesus, and Jesus is, is trying to focus in on the voices. Jesus is merely walking to the disciples and to the ship that is on the water. Jesus knows where we are. He doesn't run because he'll get there when you need him. He just came in the storm. I I love this quote. It says, Jesus uses the very trial as a footpath to deliverance. The storm and the water was the trial. And Jesus is walking on that to get to the disciples. And so as the storm is raging, he is walking on the storm to get to them. He walks. He doesn't run. Just when I need Jesus, he will arrive. Jesus will be there for us. There is a hymn written by William Poole, a Methodist minister, and it goes like this. Just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear. Ready to help me, ready to cheer, just when I need him most. Just when I need him most, just when I need him most, Jesus is near to comfort and cheer just when I need him most. There is a dark, gloomy, violent storm, angry waves, no Jesus, and he sets out to deliver them. Jesus walks and doesn't run. You say, couldn't he have come sooner? Couldn't he have come a little more quickly? You know, by this time, the disciples, their hands are blistered and sore from fighting against all. Their backs are aching. They're, they're wondering about the basket of food that they had saved. Has it fallen out? Well, all the things going on. No. John MacArthur says this. He says, you can, really, you can never really understand the power of God on your behalf until you are strung out to the extremity. The disciples, in that moment, as Jesus is walking, that's when they are at their extreme. Jesus knows when you are there so that when he arrives that you will understand exactly what is taking place. He arrives in time. And the disciples, verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. It's a phantom, literally, is what they say. They cried out in fear. They all saw Jesus and thought ghost. It wasn't like, you know, one of them said, hey, I think, Jesus, I think there's a ghost here. They're all like, that's a ghost. They're terrified by this. And, and don't, get, don't fall into some of these camps that say, well, what they saw was Jesus walking along the shoreline. They were too far removed from the shoreline for them to think it was Jesus on the shore or a ghost on the shore. Uh, they saw something in the water and they were terrified by that. Shaken, panicked quaking it wasn't simply like it was it had grasped them and they were controlled by that and they cried out in fear 
They were upset. They were alarmed. And that's okay. And that's okay. You say, wait a minute. That's not how we should react in storms. We should be stoic. We should be strong. We should be tough. The same students that I asked them some of their storms, I I asked them, I said, what do you not want to hear when you're going through the storm? Here are some of the things they said. They said, we don't want to hear, uh, you're going to be fine. We don't want to hear, just figure it out. We don't want to hear, oh, you think you're going through a hard time? I'm going through something much worse. Instead, what they want to hear is exactly what Jesus said, I'm here. I'm here for you. You see, it's okay to feel frightened by the storm, but remember, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You say, why didn't they recognize Jesus? They had just been with him. He had just done this marvelous miracle. Why didn't they connect the dots and think, he can feed 25,000 people, surely he can walk on water, so it must be Jesus. Why didn't they make that connection? I don't know. But it's a warning to me that you can be so close to the action of Jesus Christ and still have a marginal faith and a stony heart. So I'm not too hard on the disciples here because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to sometimes hear the message of the Word of God preached on a regular basis and still not react the way that I should in the storm. So I give the disciples a little bit of slack here, but but here is what's happening is Jesus immediately spoke to them saying. He says immediately, he uses, Matthew uses the word immediate three different times. The first time in verse 22, immediately let's get out of here because the crowd is trying to make us king. Immediately my disciples are in trouble, Jesus speaks to them. The third time we'll see here in just a moment. But immediately Jesus says something. He says, it is I. It is I. No long speech, no flowery epithets. It's me, fellas, it's me. Because that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus in this situation. He was the one that had sent them. He was the one that had said, go. And so they wanted him because he had done something before, he could do something again. But you see, their situation is much more hopeless than you can really imagine, right? Because they're in the boat, no Jesus. They are on the water about four miles away from where Jesus was. And they took the only boat that there was. So they weren't even thinking Jesus is coming in a boat because there were no more boats. And so when Jesus walks up to them, he says, it is I. It's me. I'm here. Jesus shows up just in time. He's never late. Mary and Martha thought he was late. Remember when Lazarus died and Jesus showed up three days later? Mary and Martha said, he stinks. And Jesus goes to the tomb, says, fellows, roll the rock. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. He wasn't too late. He was just in time. See, Jesus arrives just in time. Remember in Genesis? Genesis 22, when Abraham was told to take your one and only son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And he is going and he's making his way to the altar and his son is saying, well, where's the ram? Where's the ram? And Abraham puts Isaac on the altar and raises the knife 
ready to sacrifice His one and only Son. And the angel stops and says, over there in the thicket, there's the ram. Jehovah Jireh, I will provide. You have passed the test of faithfulness. Just in time. Jesus arrives just in time. He's never late. He's always there when He needs to. Uh, Verse 28 says this, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter walked, literally just like Jesus, he began to walk. And he is walking on the water. Can we pause for just a moment here? This morning, I am not sharing the Word of God and the story so that you can think that I'm going to be able to walk on water. Instead, I am sharing this so that you understand that you can't walk on water, but Jesus can, and He will deliver you. No one walked on water later, right? The disciples were not taught how to walk on water by Jesus. The only time I've heard of anyone walking on water or even attempting it was an old story that was going around when I was in high school about a basketball player from Canton, Ohio. His name was Mike Madej. He had long blonde hair, and he was one of the best players in Northeast Ohio. And he was recruited by Bob Knight, who coached at the University of Indiana. Have you heard of Bob Knight? You know who I'm talking about? And Bob Knight had some very strict rules, and one of his rules was you have to have short hair to play on my basketball team. And so Mike Madej shows up, and Bobby Knight says, hey, you need to get a haircut. And Mike Madej says, no, I'm like Jesus. I have long hair. And Bob Knight said, okay, that's fine, and took him over to the natatorium, which is where the pool is, and he took Mike Madej right up to the edge of the pool, and he says, okay, you're like Jesus. Walk across this pool, and you can keep your long hair. Mike Madej didn't walk on water, and he didn't last at Indiana either. He ended up going to Bowling Green. But my point is, that's not what we're trying to accomplish this morning. We're not trying to bolster you to the point where you're like, I'm ready. I can do this. I can get on the water and I can walk. I can. That's not the intent. The intent this morning is to remind you of Christ. To remind you of Jesus and what he can do as you go through the storms of life. Alistair Begg said this. He says, this story is about Christ Once we discover who Jesus is and then discover who we are, then we make the wonderful discovery of our lives being defined in relationship to Christ. This is an act of faith for Peter to step out onto the water. It's an act of faith. But it's also a tremendous demonstration of God's love because he is saying to Peter, come, come Peter, walk, because I'm not only going to reward your faith, but I'm going to save you when you need it. There are some people that, you know, just beat Peter to death and say, oh no, this is Peter being brash and arrogant and all. There is no way that Jesus would ever condone that. He would have never said come if this were a sin of presumption and pride. And so Peter comes out of the boat and he steps and he begins to walk just like Jesus. And Peter would rather be attempting to walk on the raging water than to try to fight it out sitting in the boat because he wanted to get to Jesus. He knew Jesus was the answer. He knew Jesus would save him. Tenderly, compassionately, 
Jesus says, come, and Peter begins to walk. You see, Peter knew about what it was like to be in the boat with Jesus. Peter knew that because he was there when they went to the back of the boat and said, don't you care, Lord? And the storm stopped. So Peter knew what it was like to be in the boat with Jesus. Now he wants to know what it's like to be out of the boat with Jesus, trusting him, walking with him. And he walks. We need to be taught what we don't know. We don't know what it's like sometimes to be in the storm that God has chosen for us. But Jesus will meet us in that storm. Verse 30, you see what happens? But when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Some people say that the the two reasons people don't pray is they don't have time and they don't know what to say. And so Peter is taken to the extreme and he begins to sink and he immediately has time to pray and he immediately knows what to say. Because our prayers need to be simple and precise. And that's what Peter did. Sometimes we, we, we get caught up in this idea, I, I can't have this relationship with Jesus. I can't talk to him. I, it's simple. You have a need. Your need is sin. You are lost and dying without him. Save me. It's simple. And that's what Peter does. He reaches out and he says, Lord, save me. And immediately, for the third time, verse 22, immediately he sent them away. Immediately he spoke to them when they were in their distress. And immediately when Peter needed him, he reaches down and saves Peter. You say, well, you know, did Peter learn his lesson? Well, listen to this. He wrote two books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. And in First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter learned something that day. And then he records it for us later. Jesus will pray for you. Jesus allows us to go into the storms. Jesus will meet you in the storm. And finally, the fourth help is Jesus gets all the glory. Jesus gets all the glory. Notice what happens in verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, Jesus. Truly, you are the Son of God. Take in the cultural context. These are guys who are devoutly monotheistic. And they are worshiping and saying, you are a God. So what this does is it gives us their declaration that he is God. And Jesus, who was also a good Jew, understands that you only worship the true and living God 
And what does he do when they begin to worship him? He accepts it. Why? Because he's the true and living God. So that's who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, the true and living God. Won't you trust him today? Won't you trust him today, this one who is worthy of our worship? This one who is sufficient for all of our needs? The first time they say these words is after they have seen the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. After they have seen the miracle of him walking on the water and stilling the storm. He is God. This is a story not in which we can find ourselves. Don't look for yourself this morning. Look for Christ. Look for Christ who is sufficient, who should be worshipped. Worship him. This is a culmination of quite a day. John the Baptist had been beheaded, uh, feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, and we end the day by worshiping him. Worshiping him. We are worshiping Jesus Christ. You are deity. You are the Son of God. Truly, truly, they say, when they saw Christ meeting their needs and caring for them and providing for them, convincing them that he was the Son of God, he was deity, they worshiped him. Sometimes what happens in these situations, you you know, the question then becomes, well, what about Peter? How come nobody's congratulating Peter? Shouldn't he get a ribbon or a trophy or something? Because he was the one that got out of the boat and walked on the water. He gets nothing except deliverance. Because he did nothing, really. Christ did it all. And he alone is worthy of praise and worship. And the disciples recognize that and claim it. If you're in a storm today, if you're in a storm today, find a precious promise of God, fix your thoughts upon it, and discover what it is to to have an eternal God as your refuge. The promises that read like this in Psalm 511, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Those who love your name may exalt in you. In Psalm 9 it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the times of troubles. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Won't you trust him today? Won't you trust Jesus Christ today? As you are going through the storm, he is praying for you. He allows you to experience the storm. He will meet you in the storm. And when the storm reaches its conclusion, you will enjoy worshiping him and praising him for his deliverance. My wife and I, we we enjoy camping. We're We're tent campers. And uh, when my son was small, we would tent camp, and we had a three-man tent, and it was one of those dome tents. And one night we were in a place called Harrison Bay State Park. It's near Chattanooga, Tennessee. And as we were there, we were playing some game with our son. He was probably four or five years old. We were playing some game, and all of a sudden we began to hear that patter on the outside of the tent. It begins to rain. That's okay. You know, we've had rain before. Well, then it began to really rain. And my son, of course, if you've ever been in a tent and you touch the sides, the water comes through. As long as you're not touching the sides, you're okay. Well, he starts walking around, touching the sides, and the water starts coming in. And then 
have you heard of this thing called a gully washer? That's what we experienced. You know the West Liberty flood, what was it, two years ago? We had that at Harrison Bay that night. And the, the water was coming into the tent, and around the water was, it was incredible how quickly and how fierce the rain was. And I said to my wife and to my son, I said, stay here, I'm going to go get the car. And I'm not kidding you, I could barely even see the car, and it's like 10 feet away. And all I was going to do was back it up and then load them up. I could barely get to the car. It was raining and it was blowing and the wind was so hard. And so I pulled the car up and I put it in the park and I climb over the seat and the, pop the, the back hatch of our little Chevy Cavalier wagon. And I remember I looked at my son and all I did was this. I reached my hands out to him and he leapt from out of the tent into my arms. Something we had done hundreds and hundreds of times before. And he leapt into my arms. And we got to safety with my wife. This morning, Jesus Christ comes to you and he says, Here, I'm yours. Will you come to me this morning and allow me to deliver you from the storm that you're enduring? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the sufficiency of it. Thank you, Lord, for the efficacy of it. Allow us to make your word a part of our hearts and then allow our hearts to speak and spill out in trust and dependence upon you and also in worship and praise of you. Father, may we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.